We're in 2 Samuel chapter 15. It was so well read just a moment ago. You know that the worship's going to be good when Steve Richmond leads, leads a prayer. I love hearing him lead us before God, so I'm great, grateful that, that he did that. And, but as I was coming in, there's Mallory Yarbrough yawning. I said, you can't do that. She says, I'm practicing. Um, so anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate that humility uh, that you guys uh, present to me. How many in here like going camping? So you got so how many despise going camping, and you can't see why you'd give up a hotel room to do something like that? That's the rest of you. Um, and even so, if you do like camping, most of you know that it's better to go camping when you prepare to go camping. Nobody likes electricity to go off, and you can't be in your house, and so you've got to mandatorily go camp. Uh, and you're not prepared for it, and, and you know what proper pre-planning does. It prevents poor performance, and camping can be very bad if you have to go and you're not planning on it. And that's what happens to David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Um, a messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of the people of Israel, we see in verse 13, have, have gone over to Absalom. And David, without even blinking, without even a moment's hesitation, says to his servants, we got to go. we got to get out of here. And suddenly he goes from a man living in a palace for a king to a man on the run. Now this is not something he's not familiar with. This is something he's experienced before, but he thought it was all in the rearview mirror. He thought he'd given up those days of camping out in the wilderness and staying in caves, and he was now in the cushiony experience of the palace of a king. But now he has to rely on his muscle memory, those days gone by when he had to live out of a suitcase on the run and in hiding. He's older now. This wasn't expected. This was suddenly thrown on him. And yet, he has no hesitation. Let's go, guys. It's time for us to go. And he goes from being the plush experience of a king to the unsettled experience of an adventurer in the wilderness again. I have so many questions for David. Why did you not have intel that let you know what was going on out there? Why is this surprising to you? Why, if you're a king who has, a, has an army, why are you running? Aren't you ready to defend the city of Jerusalem? Why do you automatically say, we got to run? But apparently he had just enough in intel some information from people to know that he couldn't take Absalom at this point, or even if he could, he would so disrupt the people of Jerusalem that he didn't want to put them through that. And so he takes off. And there's that interesting detail that I hated Sutton to have to read about leaving the concubines at home. That's a weird detail that most of us wouldn't say. But he leaves them behind to take care of the house. The only problem I have with this is that David knows that Nathan's already given him a prophecy, and it sounds like this. Next screen. Is there? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, right in the open of all the people. That was one of the consequences, right, that Nathan pronounces. Now, why is David not going, you know what, I don't want this to happen, I'm going to take my concubines with me? Well, and that, another question you might ask is, does God consider the concubines wives? This text makes it sound like God looks at that as a wife. 
I don't know. But either way, what he does is he leaves them behind and he goes on the run. And I want us to take a journey tonight. I want us to walk with David where he goes. We are going to journey with him and see what happens. And notice the important thing is, I want you to pay attention to his experience as he goes and then pay attention to how he describes the experience once it's over because this is incredibly helpful to us. So we take a walk. Notice what it says. All his servants passed him by. First of all, you see in verse 16, before he leaves Jerusalem, he gets to the last house before you go into the wilderness. He walks through town with his entourage of people and he stops at the very last place before he descends to the brook. So he's about to leave his beloved city, what may be the last time. The rugged terrain starts, but he stops for a moment. Just before they leave the city limits, first of all, these foreign servants come. All his servants pass him by. I want you to notice that verse 16. And all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him all the way from Gath, from the days long ago when they had to fight with David, they passed on before the king. And the king says to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you going with me? Go back, stay with the king, be faithful to him. You're a foreigner. You're an exile from your own home. You came only yesterday. You're new on the block to Israel and Jerusalem. You came recently, and, and today I'm going to ask you to go wandering around with me, and you have no idea where I'm going. Go back, take your brothers with you, and the Lord will show you steadfast love and faithfulness. But Ittai answered, notice this, as the Lord lives, as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King will be, whether in death or in life, there will your servant also be. Sounds a lot like Ruth speaking to her mother-in-law. And David says, go then, pass, and Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men, and the little ones that were with him, they took their entire families, uprooted them from their homes, and they're going to go on this camping trip with David too. I'm going to say one thing about this. He's about to leave. He knows the people who are absolutely for him and put their lives on the line with him. When you go into unsettling times in your life, and they will happen, we'll talk about this later, when life gets disrupted, you need to know who the people who are in this with you are. You need to know who your people who say to you, it doesn't matter what happens to you, what's said about you, where you go, what ends up taking place, I am 100% with you. And David has this answer, we are going to go with you if we die. It's amazing. Those people who will stand with you no matter what. Notice the next line then. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. All the people passed on toward the wilderness. Before he left, he looked and he noticed all the people of Israel, as Jerusalem as he was passing on the street, they couldn't go with him. They couldn't support him. They couldn't help him but they were weeping over the fact that their chosen king was leaving. They were devastated. 
There's some in this assembly that you have people that you know and you love. You can't go and stand with them. You can't go and endure their difficulty with them, but you let them know that you're weeping with them as they weep. And, they, and you are with them, and you send them the cards. You might be in the nursing home. You might be in a place where you just can't help a whole lot, but you let them know, I am with you. And David remembers that, and David has that in his head. You can't go with them. You can't fight with them in the wilderness, but you're on their side, and they know it. When you let people know you're on their side, it matters. So the picture as he leads Jerusalem in his eyes are, I've got these servants who will fight with me to the death who are on my side, and I've got these people that they can't come with me, but they love me and they support me. And with that, he leaves the area. Now he's, it says he, he now goes to the Brook Kedron. So he goes down into this little brook that he's going to suddenly have to go through in order to get to the Mount of Olives on the other side. Abiathar the priest comes up to him along with the other Levites and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they are with David too. You are the king. You are God's chosen and we're going to take God's presence in the Ark because we take that with him wherever God's anointed goes. And David says, no, you're not. You're going to go back. You're going to take the Ark back because the Ark needs to stay in God's city. God may see fit to bring me back, he says. But if he doesn't, that's God's choice. The ark stays here. David puts himself completely under the will of God. Whatever God decides, that's what's going to happen. And he sends the priest back, and he says, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to be my eyes in the city. When you hear something, meet me at the spot. And he tells them a spot where they will rendezvous for some information. But he lets God know he's going to trust God no matter what God decides to do. They come through that then, and they continue going up. They go through the brook Kedron, it says, and then they start the ascent up the Mount of Olives. And it says that David was weeping, his head was covered, and he was barefoot the whole way. This was... This was a very mournful experience, a devastating thing to him, and he was confessing and he was repenting and he was sorrowful the whole way, even barefoot up that rugged terrain. And the people that were with him were doing the same thing. And as he was going up the hill, it says that he learned, someone told him, that Ahithophel, his prized counselor from the past, has now turned over to Absalom's side. And David is totally upset about this. And he prays to God that God will upset the counsel of Ahithophel. And if you look at chapter 16, verse 23, the advice and the wisdom of Ahithophel was like the words of God to both David and to Absalom. This man was a prized, wise person and counselor, and now he's on the other side. And he learns this as he's going up the ascent to the Mount of Olives. Then it says David reaches the top, the top of the Mount of Olives, where he could look across the horizon and see a panoramic view of the entire city of Jerusalem. And there he's met by an old servant named Hushai. He's terribly upset. He's in mourning too. And he wants to follow David, but he's an old man. And David knows he can't handle the journey. And he says, you'll be a burden to me and it will hurt you if you come. So I'm going to send you back. And what I want you to do is I want you to discourage the counsel of Ahithophel. 
I want you to be a, a voice that cancels out his because they'll trust you too. And so David, David sends him back and Hushai goes back to the city. We have no idea how long he stayed there on the Mount of Olives looking across at Jerusalem. But there he weeps. You think of anyone else who stood on the Mount of Olives looking over at the city of Jerusalem and weeps over it? Do you know anybody else who ever did that? Jesus did. Now, David can't know that, but we as, a Bible, as Bible students, we're looking at that and going, you're in solidarity with Jesus, and it's for the same reason. These people won't accept the leadership God puts over them. They ran David out of town, and when Jesus goes into Jerusalem to try to be its savior, what do they do? They run him out of town and kill him outside of town, right? Same kind of thing. And that's, I wonder, I just look at that, and I, that's such an amazing, holy experience. Well, they're done there. They leave the summit, it says, started now down the other side, going into this wild area between the Mount of Olives and the Jordan River. And there they meet Ziba, another character coming into the story. I don't really know what his motives are, but he doesn't quite tell the truth about what Mephibosheth's doing. But what I want you to do is see, he brings them donkeys full of summer fruit and all sorts of food to help him on the journey. He helps him in a very practical way. There's somebody meeting him with some practical help. And the fact that it's summer fruit tells you what time of the year this happens. It's in the summer. And so there's Zeba bringing him donkeys full of food on top that helps him practically. When somebody does something practical like that, it hits your memory and it's recorded for you. It's important. Then they go by the city that nobody knows where it is now, Bahurim, and from someone from the house of Saul comes out, and this is the only negative thing along the story. His name is, is Shimei, Shimei, and he starts cursing and throwing rocks and mud and, and saying, David, this is your punishment. God is punishing you for what you did to the house of Saul, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and of course, David, says, uh, or David has a general uh, and some troops that say, you know, we can take his head off anytime you want us to. And David says, no, this might be my punishment. There's one guy along making this journey hard. 2 Samuel 16, verses 11 through 13. Later, when David gets to go back in the city, Shimei meets him. Shimei meets him, and he confesses his sin, and David forgives him and does not kill him. But when David dies, he says to Solomon, take care of this guy, and Solomon does. But along the journey, you've got some naysayers. You've got some discouragers along the journey. And finally, they arrive at the Jordan River at the end of chapter 16. In verse 14, the king and all the people with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. While he arrives at the Jordan some 20 miles away, Hushai enters the city at the same time Absalom does. And I want you to see what is said here. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. This is verse 15 of chapter 16. And Ahithophel with him, and when Hushai the archite, who David just sent back, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king. He does not say the king's name. Long live the king. Who do you think he means? Long live the king. And Absalom said that, uh, to Hushai as if he's a little suspicious. He says, is this your loyalty to your friend, David? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, this his I will be, and with him I will remain. Never says the name. And I know what he means when he says it. 
Whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, so I will serve you. And he did. We'll see later on some of the things he does. And then Absalom says to Ahithophel, the wise man, what's the first thing you should, I should do? And he says, put a tent on your roof, the same roof that David was standing on when he saw Bathsheba, and I want you to sleep with all the concubines in the full open daylight. And that put a rift and a wedge between David and Absalom that could never be repaired. It's a declaration of war on his father. What a weird story. What a sad turn of events for David to go from being comfortable in the palace to being on the run again. But as David refreshes himself at that Jordan River, there is something that happens to him. It's like, it's like his old faithful self comes to him. And he either takes a pen and writes on paper or else he memorizes forever a special psalm. It's Psalm 3, and if you'll turn over there, I want you to notice the, 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 the uh, heading over Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. He sits down on that Jordan River, and he starts thinking about that journey we just took with him and all the things that happened. You remember, he, he learned who his true friends were who would go to the death with him. And he learned that the city still supported him and loved him, even though they couldn't be with him. And he had servants that he sent back to be spies. And he had God's people, the, the servants of God, the, the, the priests of God that were still on his side back home. He had some opponents too. But to listen to what he says. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. You know what they're saying? He's in deep trouble. He's got a lot of enemies. There is no chance for him. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He's at the Jordan now, 20 miles later, a long journey later, but he's looking back on that, and he said, the entire time God was a shield about me, and he lifted up my head, and trust in me, I'm going to take care of you. You are my servant. Even when you're on the run in the wilderness, very unsettled, this is not the life of a king, a child of God that I expected, this unsettled disposition, right? The whole time you're a shield. And you lift up my head when it's rooted down to earth. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves around me. That's another song I like too. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies with the on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You know what it's like? When life turns on a dime, the call comes, the wreck happens, the diagnosis is delivered. Do you know what it's like for life? For one minute, it looks fine and everything's hunky-dory with you. And the next minute, the very next second, I mean, we're talking about a flash. The blink of an eye, everything changes. You ever been there? Has that ever happened to you? And life goes suddenly unsettled. Everything is unsettled. That's where David was. It was a Sunday night, 
I've told you this story before, but I'll tell you a different twist on this. We were planning to go to Gatlinburg and climb Mount Lacan. And you can only only reserve your, uh, you can stay on top of that hill. That's a huge hike. Not many people take it, but there's a nice, it's not a nice um, place to stay. It's a very rugged place to stay, but it's a coveted place. And you've got to make reservations years in advance. And we'd we'd made reservations years in advance because this is something we'd always want to do as a family. We're going to climb Mount Lacan. We're going to stay up there at night. It's going to be cool, and we're going to buy the shirt while we're up there, because there's a shirt you can buy, but only when you get to the top. You can't buy it at some gift shop in Gatlinburg. You've got to climb the mountain, and you've got to stay up there in order to be able to get this shirt. We were going to get the shirt. We had it all planned. It was spring break. But that Sunday night at church, as I was about to preach, Abby starts doing something funky. We can't quite figure out what's going on. We think she's choking, but she's not choking. And little do we know, it's like the first of several seizures that were going to happen. You go to the hospital and suddenly you got a couple tumors. You got to get to Labonner. So we go to Labonner and all this stuff happens and you have brain surgery, you have open heart surgery over the course of a few weeks. And I'm telling you, life changed like that. There was no postcard in the mail, there was no message on my machine, there was nothing to prepare you for this. It's boom, life changes the very next second. And you spend lots of time in the, in the Labonner cafeteria crying. You spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on, right? You have all these specialists come in there, and you never know from one side to the other what the next kind of message is going to be. But as the months proceed, you suddenly settle in, and suddenly everything turns out okay. And so at the end of it, like a good psalm person would, when you begin your psalms with lament, you always end with praise because God answers somewhere. And so I created this special memory book for this. I still can only get about halfway through it. But if a tornado comes to my house, that's the first thing I'm going to get. It's a book dedicated to God for getting us through that mess. And it's full of people's faces. That's what David's doing in Psalm 3. He gets to the Jordan, and the the urgency and the immediacy and the terror are over. He's got some distance, and now he can reflect. And he looks back at that and says, I was never without my shield. And I can tell you as I go through that book, or as I put it together, with many psalms written in there, it just seems like the perfect place. The idea is when I look back, I realize we were never without a shield. This song we sang tonight, I think is one of those songs that will never catch on for a congregation. It's a little slow. I don't know many times where an entire congregation feels the circumstance of the song. But I also think sometimes we teach songs in the church not for worship. We sing it to give each other words that when you go through a season where life changes like that, you've got words. You've got a word that sticks in your head. And you remember Psalm 3. You're going to go through a time that call's going to come. That thing's going to change. Everything's going to change on a dime. And suddenly life will become terribly unsettled. But you, at that moment, are not without something 
to root you in God. I want you to know he's a shield about you. He promises this for all his children, and he's going to lift up your head like a kid who is so despondent about something. You say, lift up your head, look up at me. And God's saying, look up at me. I'm going to get you through this. That's Psalm 3. And this song, while we may never add it to our songs to be sung in worship, I'm going to bet there's going to be a day when you'll need it. When you'll need to be reminded, your God is a shield about you. He's the lifter of your head. And then you'll have a chance to sing hallelujah. He's the lifter of my head. And on that day, this song will mean everything to you. Let's sing this together.